Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the federal government bans flights from India and Pakistan as concerns mount about the impact of a new COVID variant sweeping India and now present in Canada. We'll get some expert advice on the ban and the new variant. The Prime Minister sets a higher target for greenhouse gas emissions but uh, reductions, but climate groups say it's still too low. Environmental campaigner and cabinet minister Stephen Gilbo will be here to defend the Liberal government's new climate plan. And an emotional Ontario Premier apologizes repeatedly for COVID restrictions that ignored the advice of health experts and promises a sick leave plan is on the way. Our panel of political commentators will weigh in on that. We'll begin tonight with the latest development in the ongoing response to COVID-19. The federal government has decided to ban all international flights to Canada from India and Pakistan, all passenger flights starting tonight and for the next 30 days. The move comes over concerns about a new variant uh, which has caused infections to soar in India. And that variant's now been detected in Canada along with other more transmissible variants which are fueling the spread of COVID in this country. The announcement was made after several days of pressure from the opposition and provincial premiers to cut back on international flights. Only 1.8% of all travelers are found to be positive with COVID-19. And I will say that despite that low number, it is important that we continue to have robust measures to protect against importation as we see provinces and territories around this country struggle to protect their uh, citizens, Canadians, through the third wave. The data that we collect also allows us to identify when positive case rates change in a country-specific manner. So while India accounts for 20% of recent air travel volumes to Canada, over 50% of all positive tests conducted at the border are from this country. And a similarly high level of cases compared to travel rates have also been linked to Pakistan. As a result, the Government of Canada is stopping direct flights from India and Pakistan for 30 days. By eliminating direct travel from these countries, public health experts will have the time to evaluate the ongoing epidemiology of that region and to reassess the situation as this region works to reduce transmission and protect its people. I want to say that our hearts are with the citizens of India, Pakistan, indeed the whole region during these incredibly difficult times. In the meantime, we'll continue to apply stringent testing and quarantine measures for all passengers arriving in Canada and we'll continue to be there for Canadians as we battle this virus together. My next guest can help us understand more about the COVID variant from India that's now present in Canada and it's causing such concern. And what difference a ban on flights might make? Raywat Dionandan is an epidemiologist with the University of Ottawa. Raywat Dionandan, thanks again for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Look, lots of concern over the emergence of this latest variant in India, which is uh, kind of running rampant there and which has shown up in Canada now. The B1617, described by the health officials as a variant of interest, but not yet a variant of concern. What's the difference? A variant of interest is suspected of being a threat to either diagnosis, treatment, or prevention. A variant of concern has evidence that it's a threat to diagnosis, treatment, or prevention. Then there's the uh, variants of high 
um, consequence. We haven't seen those yet. Those are ones which, in which there are significant threats to diagnosis, treatment, or prevention. So it'll make that shift if it's seen to actually diminish our vaccine capacity, for example. Mm. So, uh, is, is Jeff, can you give us a sense of a timeline on that? Now that we know that it's around, it's present in Canada, what, what are we watching for? We're looking to see if it is indeed hypertransmissible, if it starts overtaking the current dominant strain, which is dominant variant rather, which is B117, and if we have laboratory evidence that it can evade our immune system and vaccination. So far, some preliminary evidence suggests that the vaccines we have are actually effective against it. Not perfectly effective, but some effectiveness is all we need. If enough people get vaccinated, then that's a pretty good protection against almost all the variants. So that's good news. All right. Um, so those are the things we watch for uh, to see, uh, I suppose, how to respond to it. And uh, how do we know if the vaccines we have work against those variants? How can we be confident in that? There are two ways to do it. One is epidemiological. The other is serological. The serological approach is you take uh, blood from a vaccinated person, expose it to the virus, and see what kind of antibodies are produced. The epidemiological approach is you look to a country like India, where the disease is prevalent, and you look at the cases and decide and determine and compute how many of those cases were vaccinated and work backwards from there. Now, India only has about 10% of the population has received at least one dose of a vaccine, so it's difficult to get the numbers so far to determine if, in fact, vaccination is effective at the population level against this variant. And they only use two vaccines, the AstraZeneca and the homegrown one, Covaxin. So uh, we probably won't get epidemiological evidence for the effectiveness using the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna that we have here in Canada. But all signs point to those vaccines having broad spectrum effectiveness. So I have every expectation that they'll have at least some, if not much, effectiveness against B1617. So uh, the government taken action now. We're, uh, and I guess the question is, should we be banning international flights, including from India, to try and stop these variants from showing up in Canada? Does it work? I think it does, if you do it right. The, the objective here isn't to prevent absolute colonization of the country by these variants. It's probably impossible. The objective is to slow it down. Even a couple of cases arriving can seed populations and cause some chaos that we don't need right now. What we want to do is buy time to vaccinate. So that means slowing down the arrival of cases. We probably can't ban flights incoming from India because most travelers come through a third or fourth country. So that won't be effective. Mm -hmm. It makes more sense to me to ban unnecessary travel outright if we can't do that, at the very least, we have to put into place really good containment procedures on site here in Canada when travelers arrive. Kind of like they have in New Zealand and Australia, they descend upon all cases with overwhelming might and make sure they're quashed before they enter society. Let me ask about vaccines. Canada is receiving 1.9 million more doses of vaccine next week, which should help ramp up the rollout in the provinces. Uh, doses coming from Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. But given that our AstraZeneca supply comes from India, it's being delayed now while India tackles the outbreak in that country. And it's not clear when we'll get uh, more AstraZeneca doses. How big of a setback could that be? It can be pretty impactful, especially since now a lot of the provinces have lowered the age for AstraZeneca to 40, and that's having a fairly good impact. People who otherwise would have waited months for a vaccination are getting it now, and I think that's going to help us enormously. So not getting shots from India will slow down that process considerably. On the other hand, given the vaccine hesitancy, especially around AstraZeneca, getting more doses from the competitors may actually work in our favor. It's totally to see. So I'm an optimist. I like to think of it as uh, a good thing, 
maybe, <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, delays in AstraZeneca raise the debate again of uh, whether we can mix and match vaccines. And full disclosure, I've had uh, my first shot of the AstraZeneca vaccine about a month ago. Um, so if, if it's going to be pushed out, uh, perhaps indefinitely, and they're talking maybe more doses uh, you know, in July, uh, when, when maybe I was going to be scheduled to get it anyway. Uh, but what if we don't get AstraZeneca? What do I do? There's every reason to expect mixing and matching not only to be effective, but maybe even be superior. So that's being tested right now in trials in the UK and other countries. But the fundamental science suggests it'll be fine, if not better. So I wouldn't panic around that. All right. As you watch the latest responses to the pandemic across the country, um, how confident are you feeling that we're, uh, we're on the right track or mostly on the right track? I think at the end of the day, we always seem to do the right thing, however, a little too late often. So the lesson around the world is the places that do this well act hard and they act early. And we're still learning that lesson. Here in Ontario, it looks like we're making some last minute good choices that we should have made weeks ago. But it's good that we're making those choices now. And so new modeling suggests that we might be seeing the peak right about now. So unless we really screw things up, which is always possible, we're on the ramp to improvement. It just means we have to tolerate a couple of months of hardship, and now that ramp of normal is joined, and maybe we never get off it ever again. So I'm optimistic because we have an exit ramp, and that exit ramp is vaccination. So we have to buy time to get uh, more jabs into more arms. All right. Uh, Rewat Dionand, and as always, uh, great to get your uh, thoughts tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. The Liberal government has set a new, more ambitious national target for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. After failing badly to meet every previous target, Canada's latest goal is a 40 to 45 percent cut in emissions levels below what they were in 2005 by 2030. That replaces the previous target for emissions cuts of 30 percent. The Prime Minister announced the new target today at a virtual summit hosted by U.S. President Joe Biden. Our new climate target for 2030 is to reduce our 2005 emission levels by 40 to 45 percent. And we will continually strengthen our plan and take even more actions on our journey to net zero by 2050. And here's how the opposition parties greeted the news of the new emissions reduction target. We'll begin with the Conservative leader who refused to commit to matching the new Trudeau targets. Our plan for climate change will meet our Paris targets, our international commitment, and will do so in a way that minimizes the impact on our economy, actually has better jobs and, and investment outcomes. That's what Canadians deserve, not more empty words from Mr. Trudeau, not uh, an announcement without a plan. That is his MO as Prime Minister. Shiny announcements, zero delivering. And spoiler alert, it's not a very good plan. In fact, it's one of the worst plans, if not the worst plan, amongst G7 nations in terms of reducing emissions, which isn't a big surprise because this prime minister bought a pipeline, continues to subsidize the fossil fuel sector, and continues to exempt the biggest polluters. When will this prime minister start fighting the climate crisis like he actually wants to win it? Today, we call upon the government to review and revise its target. It is never too late and adopt the 60%. Because you simply cannot call yourself a climate uh, champion if you have set a target that is too low, if you do not have a carbon budget. 
So how ambitious is Canada's new emissions reduction target when so many environmental groups say, look, Canada could do more? And what is the plan to get there? Which sectors will be targeted in this country? Stephen Gilbo is Canada's heritage minister, but he's also the leading environmental voice in cabinet. He's with me now. Minister Gilbo, uh, thanks for taking your time to speak with me tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. I would say one of the leading environmental voices. There, there are many around the cabinet table. Fair enough. The budget laid out measures to get Canada to a 36% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, the budget this week. So where's the detailed plan to get to 45% now? Well, we we believe that there are a number of things that we could do that we currently aren't doing. For example, the the, 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 the very meeting today by, organized by President Biden on climate change is a clear sign that there's a new cooperation that is possible between Canada and the U.S. on, on the fight against climate change in the fields of, 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 of green technologies, of renewable energy, of, of transportation, of, of regulating po- pollution. And in fact, we've already started conversations with, with, with the U.S. Uh, administration on, on many of these, uh, these issues. These are things we, we couldn't only dream of just a few months ago in terms of partnership with, with, the, with the U.S. administration. Uh, we're also hoping that, that provinces will also step up to the plate. And in fact, just last night, Premier Horgan from British Columbia did say that he would that the province would rise up to the, to the challenge, would do more in the fight against climate change, and we're hoping that that other provinces will, will will follow step. So this will sort of be you'll you'll identify a plan as as we go. Which specific areas where you'll find the the additional reductions? Well, we have we already have a plan that clearly outlines how we can get to, to, to minus 36 percent. We have nine years to, 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 to do the rest. And in fact, we're, we're actively engaged on a number of measures. I was talking about different different measures with, with the U.S. administration as we speak that will lead most likely in the coming months to, to agreements being signed between between our two countries. Uh, so in the very near future, we will have new measures to to, to, to announce and, and as well as we're the conversation with, with provinces ha, has started in terms of how can we collaborate more together to, to enhance climate action. Let me just give you a quick example. Um, the federal government has an incentive for the purchase of electric vehicles. So do two provinces, Quebec and BC. Well, it just so happens that in those provinces, through this collaborations between the federal government and provinces, Electric vehicle penetration is much higher than in the rest of the country, much higher than Ontario or, or other parts of the country. In fact, in BC, it's almost 10% of new vehicles that are sold are, are electric vehicles. So we, we think, and in fact, we're convinced that, that we can do more by working together with many of our partners, be they the American government or, or, or provinces. Right. D- does the identifying of a, of a more ambitious target actually... Um you know, shrink the timeline uh, for shutting down of the oil sands. If you're pushing more, uh, you know, more electric vehicles and, and, and moving this plan forward and setting a more aggressive target, does that mean uh, that by necessity, uh, you know, you're, you're shortening uh, the time frame uh, for the existence of the oil sands in Alberta? Well, clearly, as as we become more ambitious here in Canada and and everywhere around the world on issues such as uh, electric transportation and and public transit, I mean, we're Canada. The federal government is making record level investment in more than a thousand transit projects uh, across across the country in Quebec and BC and Alberta and Ontario. Um, as we continue doing that, obviously, the, the the demand for 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 oil here and abroad will will lessen. But but what is important 
important to us is that this transi- this transition is made fairly and that and that we work with with, with companies with workers with trade unions with communities to, to to map a path forward so that no one is left behind as as we are as we move away from from an energy system that okay. has been dominant over the last two centuries let to me, something new let me ask you about the federal carbon tax uh, will it remain at a ceiling of $170 a, a ton in 2030 or will it, will it have to rise even higher than that uh, to reach this new emissions reduction target uh, Peter, as we speak, uh, Canada already has one of the most ambitious carbon pricing system, more ambitious than, than Quebec and BC, more ambitious than, than California, even the European Union, which started in, early, in the early 2000s to, to, to implement such a such a system. We have said that it would go up to $170 a ton. We, uh, we have no intention to, 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 to go beyond that. It, it is one of the most robust system out there. And in fact, um, many, Bloomberg and others are saying that Canada is actually paving the way uh, when it comes to, to carbon pricing in the world. Uh, to be clear, Canada's new target is still well below the U.S. target of 52% uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, the U.K. target of 78%, but that's compared to 1990 levels. Uh, the environmental organization you used to head up says Canada could actually cut emissions by 60%. And so I guess some people are asking, why isn't Canada's target more ambitious? I have tremendous respect for my uh, for my my call my ex colleagues from the environmental movement. Um, I, environmentalists play an important role in our society on this issue to to push us to keep us on our toes, and and we welcome that. Um, but, uh, different countries have different realities. I mean, we are a large oil producer. That this whether or not we like it, this is a, a reality. And and this issue of 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 operating a transition that is fair to all is very important to us. But let me read you a, a comment from the special uh, presidential envoy to climate change, uh, Senator John Kerry, on Canada's commitment to reduce uh, the, the commitment we made today is a bold step that puts them on track to net zero. I could not be prouder of our cooperation with Canada on climate and, and our shared global challenges. So I think that our largest trading partner, the Americans, are very happy with what Canada has presented today at this uh, international summit. All right. Uh, environment, uh, sorry. <laughs> Heritage Minister uh, Stephen Gilbo talking to us about the government's new uh, emissions reductions target unveiled today. Uh, thanks for your time tonight, Minister. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Peter. The Ontario Premier promised today that a paid sick leave program for workers is coming to enhance the federal sick leave plan for COVID-19, but Doug Ford didn't say when. An emotional Premier Ford did deliver multi-mea culpas for some recent restrictions in the province that caused such anger they were withdrawn. Doug Ford did that from his late mother's backyard today because he's isolating at her home after being exposed to a staff member who tested positive. I know we got it wrong. I know we made a mistake. And for that, I'm sorry and I sincerely apologize. So please know everything I've done during every briefing, every phone call, every decision and every press conference, I've done my absolute best. I put my heart and soul into keeping that commitment to protect, support and guide this province through some of the darkest days in our history to never stop working until we put this pandemic behind us forever. Well, let's bring in our panel of political commentators now, joined this week by Liberal commentator Susan Smith, Conservative commentator Tim Powers, and NDP commentator Farouk Karim. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Um, look, 
Susan, let me start with you. And, and Doug Ford uh, said he's sorry repeatedly today for some of the measures he introduced in Ontario, almost in tears at one point when he talked about the damage to uh, families and businesses from the pandemic. But he's facing attacks from uh, his own science advisors. The hospitals are at the breaking point in Ontario. What's happening in this province? Yeah, there's a little bit of chaos, I think, behind the scenes politically in this province. But Doug Ford, uh, I guess to give him credit in one area, he said when he made a mistake, he took it back. He, he reversed himself and took it back a bit of the Ralph Klein school of politics. If you screw up, say sorry and don't try not try hard not to do it again. But I do think it's a reflection of uh, uh, of the chaos behind the scenes that clearly was not advice of the science advisory panel. They have been revolting. So he's trying to get a handle on things. Uh, it seemed like a knee-jerk uh, measure that wasn't based, grounded in anything in, beyond optics and, yeah. is, and didn't help people, it just upset people. And where he needs to take the measures, and we're still waiting for the measures to be taken, is to close even close more non-essential business so that people can stay home well, and paid sick days. Yeah, the paid, the paid sick days, which he says he needs to piggyback on top of a federal plan that, that he says isn't, isn't working. And but, but Tim, let's face it, none of the political leaders has had to deal with a crisis like this pandemic before, but some are, seem to be better at it than others. And I, I guess, why is there such turmoil in Ontario? Well, I think, look, give him credit, as, as Susan said, for, for apologizing today. That's the first step of him trying to rebuild. He's been, uh, our polling at Abacus, other polls show that this has had a pronounced impact on his uh, neg negative ratings. They're very high. They're higher than they've, they've ever been. I, I don't know why he's having difficulty right now, because in fairness to Premier Ford, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, he and, and, and the other leaders all seem to be working in, in harmony and, and making better decisions than they have been in the last few weeks. Um, you know, from what I see and what I read and what I hear, I think there's competing interests that are impacting the Doug Ford's decision-making pro process, whether that's some of his rural-based cabinet, some of his political team versus his governing team, uh, and then his, his science team. I, I think... Doug Ford does well when he decides that he's going to take a particular direction and as opposed to trying to appease a whole bunch of different entities. I think he's got to try and find his mojo. Look, again, the partisan yeah. stuff aside, it's not in Canada's interest or in Ontario's interest to have the premier struggling to the degree that he is right now okay, in this crisis. Let me bring in uh, you for a good. There's now this open fight between the premier and his science table. We touched on that or the provincial response that you know, that has a tendency to undermine public confidence in, in the direction that a government's taking on behalf of the public safety of its people. What do you see happening here in Ontario? The first ammunition that our leaders have in a pandemic and a national crisis is trust. That is, it's important that the uh, the people follow and trust the decision maker and the decision leaders. And and that's where Mr. Ford is in trouble. Uh, I'm not against him saying sorry. I think it's better to say sorry than just to be and, and stay on the same on the same route. Right. But more than saying sorry, we need the new action, new measures. And just on the pay sick leave, I think Mr. Ford is a bit victim of his ideology and not being pragmatic on this because he keeps on saying, yes, I want to do this, but there's already a federal program. We don't want to double the, the, yeah. the, the labor on this. But you know, I remember 
uh, a few months back when there was problems at the border, he didn't hesitate to, to send Ontario people at the, at the airport. So he didn't mind doubling down there. So on the paid sick leave, it, it, it makes sense to make people stay home if they are sick. If people have to choose between their health and putting food on the table, they're going to go and get the food to put the food on the table. That's clear. Yeah. So we need new measures beyond the apology. And we need to face the fact that when you keep on saying that government is the bad and is in the way of, of public good, well, what it does is people lose confidence and leadership is elected, especially on the right wing of the spectrum, not trusting government. And when we need government, they're not able to right. use it appropriately. Okay, let me let me switch. The, the federal government banning international flights from uh, high COVID spread areas, including India, uh, uh, Doug Ford and other premiers have been calling for that uh, for uh, some time now. These, these flights are carrying some infected travelers. Health Canada says about 1% of arriving passengers are testing positive. Britain and Hong Kong have already banned flights from India. Now the Canadian government uh, following up on that. Uh, but we still don't have uh, tests of essential workers crossing the border into Canada, not, not even rapid tests. Uh, Susan, uh, do we have a coherent uh, border plan in this country right now to, to deal with COVID? I think you can't have a one-size-fits-all plan, Peter. You have to examine each situation as it arises. So um, temporary bans on flights from certain countries, I think, is a good idea. It's the right thing. It's based on science and evidence. Perhaps doing better and faster border screening is, is a way to go. We've got to, got to get that done based on science and evidence. Are the are the People crossing the border back and forth in trucks or nurses in hospitals, are they bringing COVID back and forth? I presume they're getting tested in some cases at their workplaces. Um, but I think you can't have a one-size-fits-all attitude. You really do have to look at each of the each of the scenarios from a broad scope and um, uh, make a decision based on evidence right. for that. Tim, what's your view on this? Uh, the banning of flights is a is a good thing. It should have perhaps happened a little earlier, in line with the uh, with the, the British and and other nations that have have done that. So the government will get a li little bit of stick around all of that. It should only be temporary, but it but it needs to happen. I mean, I'll say this with the greatest of self interest: some of us can't even fly to different parts of this country, or if we do, we're subject to extreme measures, which are right. Uh, because of COVID. So we have to take the same approach uh, with the flights. On the land borders, Peter, to your question to, to Susan, it, sure, there needs to be a difference, but there needs to be a vigilance and a consistency because there's equally a, a data that's coming through saying, you know, people are unfortunately carrying COVID-19 as they come through. So that needs to be tightened. It needs to be tightened respecting we still need a commercial link, but we need to do better at that as well, too. All right. Let me hear uh, from you on this, Rook. Yeah, I think it makes sense if the science is there. But as for previous debate on, on borders, don't let's not put too much emphasis on it because if the, the if the virus is already in the country, I mean, there's no point, right? We need to, to, to focus on that. Additionally, on the border, let's not keep in mind that there's also political game between federal and provinces in there, and that's underlying the blame from each side. So let's not let's let's stick to science how, and how make so? sure we get out of this. How pandemic. so? What's the game you think they're playing on the border? Because the border is a federal jurisdiction, and when some premiers on the provincial side are in trouble, let's say like Mr. Ford, uh, they like to put it back on the federal level, saying that it's his problem. Like he was saying, we don't have enough vaccine, which is mm -hmm. true. But there's also additional problems on the provincial side that he should focus on. All right. Uh, look, time is short tonight, but I uh, appreciate your uh, your perspectives. Good to talk to you again, and uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.
And that's all the time we have for Primetime Politics tonight. I'm Peter Van Dusen from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks again for watching. Till next time.